Hello, everyone, and welcome to this IFG event, uh, looking at what the spring budget means for UK fiscal policy. Thanks to everyone who's joining us here in person and everyone who's joining us online. Uh, just a few logistics. We'll be tweeting today's uh, event, as we always do all our, event, our events from IFG events, with the hashtag IFG Spring Budget. Um, and if you are online, hi, Stephen, uh, do send in your questions via Slido. Um, and we will have video and sound recording of the event on the IFG website and on YouTube uh, very soon afterwards, so you can go back and watch it all over again, should you wish to. So what we're going to be exploring today is where the budget leaves UK fiscal policy in the lead up to the next election. Uh, questions including uh, what the budget has revealed about the government's approach to economic and fiscal policy, how uh, the economic and fiscal outlook will shape the general election campaign we anticipate uh, will begin uh, for an election we are, I think, all thinking in the autumn of 2024. Uh, what the government's spending plans look like and whether they're plausible, and what the strengths and weaknesses are of the rules which we have that shape the government's fiscal plans. And I'm delighted to be joined today uh, by an excellent panel to discuss all these questions. We have, of course, Richard Hughes, who is chair of the OBR, Stephen Bush from the FT, who is a columnist and associate editor, uh, my colleague Gemma Tetlow on screen, who is our chief economist, and, of course, Nick Davies, who is Programme Director, leads all our work on public services. So all the right people in the room to answer your questions. So I want, actually, to kick off with you, Gemma, if that's all right, if you can hear us OK. Yep. Um, can you just give us an overview of what you think the key takeaways are that we should take from the budget? There was a lot of talk in the run-up to the budget about the importance of boosting growth and particularly trying to tackle the fall in labour force participation that there's been. And so there was a lot of focus yesterday on the measures that Jeremy Hunt took. I think rightly so, because some of them, particularly the measures on increasing childcare support, are genuinely quite large. And as um, Richard and colleagues uh, looked at and decided those were likely to have an impact on UK's economic potential. But actually, the more I sort of stepped back and thought about what we heard yesterday, the more actually the takeaway for me was really, it was a picture of a Chancellor announcing really quite a sizable increase in the offer of the state, offering support for childcare from zero to two years old, which hasn't been a part of our um, sort of social security system in the past. So increasing the scope of the state at the same time as announcing a small net tax cut through fuel duty and pension tax changes, that was made possible by uh, slightly better economic forecasts. But actually, that was in the context of we already had a real problem trying to raise the money needed to provide the quality of services in other areas that the public sector already provides that people want. Um, we already had a long term fiscal sustainability problem. So for me, it seemed sort of looking back at it slightly um, detached from the reality of the fiscal pressures we face to increase the offer of the state, something that will be then hard to roll back and to actually cut taxes rather than announcing how you're going to raise more money to pay for that extra offer. Thanks, Gemma. Richard, obviously, looking from an, from an OBR perspective, it'd be interesting to have your take, sort of slightly longer term take on how the economic and fiscal um, picture has changed over the last few years and what role you think the fiscal rules, as I mentioned at the beginning, are, have, have started to take in shaping that picture. Sure. Uh, so we, did, we published our forecast alongside the budget uh, yesterday. It was, it was our latest forecast since we did one back in November. And I think it's fair to say that 
all of the forecasts we've done really um, since 2020 have, have taken place against the backdrop of just extraordinary volatility, first driven by the pandemic, um, more recently driven by uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has just sent energy prices um, uh, oscillating uh, hugely. And then more recently, you've had kind of a third uh, thing which has been introduced into the mix, which is higher interest rates, um, which, which also make the job of being a chancellor more challenging um, because he's got 100% debt to GDP ratio. So the interest rate matters a lot. The interest rate he's paying on that debt matters a lot because he's got a pound of it for every pound of, uh, of output of the GDP that we produce in a year. Um, uh, our latest forecast was a bit brighter in the near term, um, uh, I think both for households and for, and for Jeremy Hunt. Uh, because all three of those things, which have been jumping around a lot in the last in the last 18 months, uh, fell relative to our forecast back in November. We've got lower energy prices, slightly lower inflation, um, and we've got lower interest rates, um, at, which means that there was some improvement in some of the key drivers of what were what were driving a, a slightly more downbeat outlook in, in November. Uh, what it means for inflation is that it, it, we think we've lost the peak, uh, that it reached around they reached around 11% at the end of last year. We think that by the end of this year, it will get to around 3%, um, really just by virtue of the fact that energy prices are, are coming down rather than going up um, over that period. That alleviates some of what, what is still a historic financial squeeze on households and businesses, um, but means that you see the fall in GDP we expect this year to be much less uh, than we were expecting back in November, we were expecting a sort of 2% contraction in the economy. You're now facing something more like half a percent peak to trough um, uh, in the first quarter of this year. And technically, uh, we avoid a recession because you don't have two quarters of, of negative growth. Uh, but it, it is still the case that uh, that's good news in the near term. It still means that you're seeing a big squeeze on living standards, the biggest one we've seen, in, the biggest two-year squeeze on living standards we've seen in this country since records began. It's around a 6% fall in in real disposable income per person compared to what we thought was going to be a 7% fall uh, last year. So it's better news in the near term, but still um, historically pretty bleak in terms of what's happening to living standards here in the UK. Um, looking out to the medium term, the picture was broadly unchanged, I would say, but slightly improved, um, including because of the actions that the Chancellor took in the budget. Uh, the budget did take aim at I'd say two of the three things that have held back UK growth over the last decade or so, um, you know, th those are, we've seen basically stagnant business investment since 2016. Um, we've lost about 500,000 people from the workforce since the pandemic, and we've seen sluggish productivity growth since the financial crisis. The budget took aim really at the first two of those things. Um, on investment, it provided only temporary tax incentives for firms to bring forward investment into the next three years, but they then expire in March 2026. And that means that uh, they, 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 have the, they have the incentive of getting firms to bring forward investment, but not permanently increase their level of investment. So in the long term, investment is unchanged, but you get a sort of investment boost in the next few years. The thing that does make a lasting difference are the announcements that he made on, on the labor supply to try and boost participation in the labor force. We think that they add about 110,000 people to the workforce, um, which is material, but you have to remember the workforce is 30 million people, more than 30 million people. So um, it's, it's, it's about a 0.2% increase in the workforce and about a 0.2% increase in output from those measures overall. Um, on productivity, not really a big change, actually. Um, a little bit better because energy prices are lower in the, in the medium term and that just lowers the unit cost of doing business um, if you're an energy intensive industry. Um, but, but fundamentally, 
nothing that really was, was going to make a big difference to the productivity of, of the UK economy. Um, what does that mean for the sort of fiscal position? Well, the better economic outlook in the near term gave him a bit of a fiscal windfall. He got about £25 billion pounds, um, uh, uh, as an extra headroom against his, his borrowing target. He spent about two-thirds of that on policy measures. And I think one of the things which you see as a pattern of, the ch of behavior in all chances is that when they get good news, they spend it. Um, and then when, when they get bad news, they don't adjust for it. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it makes it, it is so difficult to kind of make progress in terms of fiscal consolidation because good news gets spent, you know, bad news just gets taken on the taken on the chin. Um, and in the end, by the time you get to the fifth year of our forecast, where the chances fiscal rules fall due for him to get debt falling, um, debt is just about falling by the by the final year of the forecast, but it's falling by 0.2% of GDP, um, which is six and a half billion pounds on a three trillion pound economy. So a very small amount indeed. Um, and to put it into context, the average chancellor against their fiscal rules has had about 25 billion pounds to spare against whatever rule they set for themselves. This chancellor's got six and a half. Um, and so it is vanishingly small by comparison with any of the risks or threats that might face the fiscal outlook between here um, and year five. And we, and we might get, get back, we can come back in the discussion to sort of what kind of incentives is having rules-based fiscal policy set up for the kind of policies that get announced um, and for the kind of announcements that get, get made. Yeah, I think we'll definitely do that. Um, Nick, can I just ask you to, to say a little bit about public services? What, what, does, what did the budget do for the outlook for public services and, and what does this mean running into the next election? Uh, so broadly, the Chancellor barely mentioned public services uh, throughout, but I'll pick up on two things where there were announcements. So firstly, on childcare. Uh, so currently parents get support up to nine months uh, and then from three years onwards and the government has announced that it will help fill that gap by offering uh, free nursery hours for children aged nine months to three. That will be a big deal for some families and get quite a lot of people um, back into work. Uh, but there are two big caveats to that. Um, firstly, the full 30 hours for all children of those ages will only come on stream from 2025, which I can say from uh, personal experience, just to take a random example, if you have uh, two <laughs> children who might be aged four and six uh, by that point, it might be quite frustrating. Um, and probably more importantly, um, whether the fees that will be paid will be sufficient to increase the supply. Um, and we can talk a bit about that um, in the questions. The other notable change was to pension allowances. And for public services, that might help with retention of and the number of hours worked by older senior doctors, um, which could help in the NHS, though the government's chosen a pretty expensive way of helping that small group of people. Um, other than that, Hunt left um, departmental spending totals largely unchanged, which means most departments will only see pretty small increases over the next two years. And in theory, that will make it very hard to uh, find the money to pay for the higher pay offers that might be needed to bring industrial action to an end. However, uh, just before we came on stage, there were reports that the government has indeed made a quite generous uh, pay offer to nurses and ambulance uh, staff. And there was a £13 billion reserve that the Chancellor had, which could be used to pay for those. I think looking ahead to the next election, the decisions and omissions from the budget 
mean that services in general are going to be performing worse than they were on the eve of the pandemic, which in almost all cases was worse than they were performing um, in 2010. So we are certainly going to be discussing long waiting times and waiting lists in the NHS, uh, inadequate social care, uh, shortage of teachers uh, and a crumbling criminal justice system. As we noted in our recent performance track report, which we published um, with SIPFA, Fixing those, those issues is going to be a huge challenge for whoever forms uh, the next government, uh, particularly as the spending plans penciled in from 2025 onwards are incredibly tight. Uh, so it's a just a 1% increase in day-to-day -day spending for all public services, but for unprotected ones like the police uh, and criminal courts and prisons, it's actually a 1.1% cut over those years. So that's definitely not enough to make meaningful improvements. And I think the big question for both main parties is how honest they are willing to be with the electorate about the quality of public services that they can expect, given the level of taxation that we have. Doesn't necessarily feel like the big public conversation you want to launch no. <laughs> 18 months out from an election. So, which is really a question to you, Stephen. I mean, as Nick was saying, Jeremy Hunt, rather stole some of the clothes I think Labour was planning to put on in terms of childcare uh, with some of his announcements there. What are the sort of policy options and, and constraints that the parties are going to be facing in terms of fiscal policy in the run into the next election? Well, the big constraint, yeah, as we've already heard, right, the, the government has broadly taken on a new spending obligation with its childcare policy. Uh, we have an increased uh, defence spending obligation because of yeah, what's happened with the war in Ukraine and what may uh, happen uh, with the tensions between US, the US and China. And we have an ageing population. So even before you get into all of the quite grim pictures in the IFG's performance monitor, there are just mounting, co there are mounting costs to provide an existing level of uh, services and we're getting a pretty good steer from voters. Um, people don't, yeah, they want, they want even more on top. And the difficulty for both parties is if you're the Labour Party and you're haunted by those elections you've lost because of tax bombshells, you do not want to be going into the next election in a position of going, by the way, your taxes are going to have to go up quite a lot. If you're the Conservative Party and what you don't want when you want to run a, you know, look at Rishi, isn't he wonderful, you know, whisper, whisper, unfortunately that does involve you re-electing the Conservatives. Um, you don't want a bunch of Conservative MPs sniping at him about tax rises. So I think, you know, what we'll, we'll see a lot of in the next year is lots of arguments about growth strategies, lots of arguments about public service reform, and obviously there is always room to reform services to make them better, precisely because they're both in this bind where I think we all know that those very sharp implied cuts at the end of, of the forecast have about as much potential happening as me, you know, growing wings, flying around this, this room. Uh, but no, neither, neither party really will want to touch that this side of the election. I think in some ways the interesting divide this sets up is which party will do a better job of keeping the argument it is going to have to have with itself and voters after the election about tax, which one will be able to keep that submerged this side, side of October 2024, and which side will find that that argument starts to sort of spill out into open view. And before we even get to the other side of the election, Nick, I mean, you mentioned in terms of the childcare offer that the funding that's been sort of penciled in against that might not be um, sufficient even for the expansion being, being proposed already. Yeah, so currently the amount of money that the government provides for three and four-year-olds 
is short of how much it actually costs to deliver those services by about 1.8 billion, according to the government's own figures. And the way that childcare providers square that circle is they cross-subsidise with the fees of privately funded younger children. But if those younger children suddenly have access or eligibility for free childcare themselves, the question is, how are they going to, how are childcare providers going to balance the book? And indeed, the chief executive of the Early Years uh, Alliance, which represents those bodies, has described it as uh, potentially an utter disaster. Uh, so <laughs> I think there's a real question about how you increase supply and whether the existing supply can remain viable. And that's presumably why that's been built in on a as you were saying, frustrating for some people, but a longer time frame. <laughs> yeah, so I, it's from the numbers, for the younger children, the numbers looks like it might be enough. The big question is whether the, there's been a kind of a couple of hundred million increase for three and four-year-olds, but that is not nearly enough to cover that gap. So it's whether the government will need to do more in the coming years to fill that. I want to come back to this, this question of fiscal rules and to you, Gemma. Do you feel, I mean, obviously fiscal rules were brought in, designed to try to ensure that the governments acted sensibly in various ways. But do you think that they're potentially now, in some ways, we can see they're doing us more harm than good? I think there's definitely quite a bit of evidence from yesterday and before that, that they are leading to some quite perverse behaviours. As you said, that the target they've got to have debt falling is really supposed to be there as a kind of proxy for public finances being on a sustainable path over time, having debt coming down, not exploding as a share of national income. Um, but actually, what it kind of drove in yesterday's announcement was that one of the big measures that was there, as Richard said, to try and boost business investment and tackle this problem in the UK growth story, um, ended up being a temporary three-year policy, which, as Richard said, is much will be much more likely just to bring forward investment, but not actually increase overall levels of investment. And the reason it was only three years seems to be very much because Jeremy Hunt didn't have the space in the last years of his forecast to make it a permanent policy. So a lot of the potential benefit that would have been there to boost long-term UK economic growth by giving business the certainty that this was a government committed to having a favourable tax environment for investing businesses was lost because of sort of gaming of the fiscal rules. And it's not the fiscal rules themselves that are really the problem. Um, Jeremy Hunt had an alternative option, which was to find other tax increases or spending cuts to pay for making that policy permanent, but he chose not to um, it, well, for whatever reasons. But it was sort of the rules didn't help, but he obviously did have other options that he didn't take as well. Richard, do you think that they're sort of starting to, to set dif difficult incentives into the system, these rules? I think they do. I think all rules do create their own sort of perverse incentives. I guess I'm, I am a believer that government should set financial objectives for themselves just, you know, just as uh, you know, if you were an investor, you would invest in a company that doesn't have a plan to get at some point into profit as a taxpayer. I don't think we should have chief financial officers who don't have a plan for make, uh, getting our finances back on a sustainable path. So I do think governments should set themselves financial objectives. We were actually one of the earliest adopters of fiscal rules in the world back in the, back in the late 1990s. These things have now spread all over the world and countries have copied them, you know, both on the continent of Europe um, and, and all around the world. Um, even, even the United States has a version of the fiscal rule, although it's especially perverse because it's on the nominal level of debt, but, and they have a debate about it every year on the debt ceiling. But I, I think 
Um, we have both a lot of experience with fiscal rules. Um, we also have an experience of a lot of different fiscal rules because governments do seem to change them with alarming frequency. And so one question you can ask yourself is, if you have a different rule every other year, do you actually have a rule? Um, or are you just kind of, um, is, is it just a target which it, it, you inevitably try and meet until you, until you can't? Um, but I do think fundamentally the idea that you set yourself a medium-term set of objectives and try to reach them is a good one. You do actually see that they shape Chancellor's behavior, so they're not just ignored. They do actually have a pretty powerful impact on the decisions that the Chancellors make. They do constrain them to making um, what are uh, a sensible set of choices um, based, on the, based on a constraint. In terms of the perverse incentives that they set up, typically these rules are expressed as an objective for either debt or borrowing in five years' time. Um, and that creates incentives to do three things. One is announce lots of one-offs because they cost money now, but they don't cost money later. But then you get a kind of succession of one-offs um, over five years rather than announcing a five-year policy. So, and the classic example in this country is fuel duty, which is that every year the Chancellor freezes fuel duty, but then he says, next year I'm going to index it by RPI. Um, and then he freezes it again. And he's done that since, the, like, and every Chancellor since 2011 has done that, and sometimes even cut fuel duty. And then they pretend they're going to put it back up. Um, and so that, that, in theory, creates lots of revenue in the future, but actually it never arrives. So you get a succession of one-offs um, and a credibility problem every time you say that you're going to index fuels UT. The other incentive it creates is to start expressing aspirations rather than policies. And we saw two of those yesterday. One was an aspiration to make this capital allowance policy permanent as and when resources allow, so not just make it a three-year policy, but actually the aspiration the Chancellor said is I want to make this a permanent policy when, when I've got the resources to do it. But that just creates more uncertainty about whether this is a temporary policy or whether it's a permanent one. You also saw it in defence, where the government said we'd like to increase defence spending from the NATO 2% target to 2.5% of GDP. But again, it's an aspiration without, without, a, time, without a, a time horizon. Um, and then the final incentive it sets up is, is the one um, that, was, that, that was mentioned here, which is um, sort of having fantasy spending plans, which is you know, beyond, by the time you, you know, beyond the next few years where you really need proper spending plans so departments can plan in years four and year five, you pretend that you're going to freeze spending in cash terms um, or that spending is going to fall, fall in cash terms or fall as a share of GDP when you know full well that's not consistent with all the policies that you want to implement when you get there. And that does actually disrupt departmental planning, especially for things like capital projects, where you know, projects like uh, HS2 are 20, 30 years in the planning. And so if they've only got a budget for the next three years, um, it, be it becomes very difficult to actually plan how much you're going to spend. Just to come back to that fuel duty point, I mean, at what point does the ABR need to just <laughs> say to the government, you know, this isn't plausible. We, we, we can't continue to to forecast on the basis that at any point you are going to do this. And this is successive governments, obviously. So we got part of the way there this time. And if you, if, if you, if you dare to delve into the details of, of, the, of the EFO, you can see that when we reported performance against the government's fiscal rules, we did one with their current fuel duty policy and then one with fuel duty frozen for the next five years, because that's what every government's done since 2011. That was based on a recommendation from Parliament that we do so. And so we were happy to oblige. We are slightly legally cost drug in the sense that we have to, by law, put government-stated policy into our forecast because our forecast both serves the government as a way of understanding the cost of its stated policies as well as the public in terms of trying to interpret what's going to happen over the next five years. The law says err on the side of believing the government rather than believing um, what the rest of the world believes. Um, and, and so we've tried to serve both constituencies by, by you know, having one set of numbers and then also a memo item on the bottom. We'll all make sure to have a look at that.
Um, Stephen, one thing we haven't touched on so much uh, yet is the announcement from Jeremy Hunt that in the next spending review, uh, the mayors of Greater Manchester and West Midlands will get a sort of combined pot of money with more flexibility about how to, s to spend it. Is that a good idea in your view? Yeah, I think it's a great idea for, for multiple reasons. One, um, and in some ways it's actually it's quite similar to the reason why Joel Barnett invented the Barnett formula in, 19, in the 1970s, where he was, his, the government was continually having its energy drained by having to negotiate not only with the spending departments, but then having to have other negotiations with the secretaries of state for Scotland and Wales, respectively. And broadly speaking, if you think about every minute in Jeremy Hunt's day, and indeed every minute in Rishi Sunak's day when they're not thinking about, you know, AI, and they're instead thinking about, oh, is Andy Burnham spending the, you know, putting the toilets in and coats in the right place? And broadly speaking, every, every moment the Chancellor of the Second and the Prime Minister are not spending on the toilets of Ancoats is a moment they are hopefully spending on something only central government can do. So it's hugely positive um, from that perspective. I'm going to slightly, as a journalist, talk my own book here. I think it, um, it's great that we are finally seeing more devolution of, of genuine power and, and slightly ending this begging bowl approach, as Andy Street puts it, to devolution spending settlement. But we also have a very centralised media. We have a situation in which the BBC is cutting back on local radio, where Reach is cutting 300 jobs in local uh, media. That is going to have a huge effect on the ability to effectively scrutinise this public spending. And this daft idea that that's going to be fixed by the 28 MPs in Greater Manchester and the 20, sorry, 27 MPs in Greater Manchester and the 28 MPs in um, what I need to stop calling Greater Birmingham because uh, my partner who's from Staffordshire starts to throw things at me. But broadly speaking, <laughs> it's Greater Birmingham. People in Wolverhampton need to accept, and that's, that's the reality. Um, but this idea that those MPs are, you know, many of whom are either you know, in the shadow cabinet, in the cabinet, or select committee chairs, are also going to effectively be a new engine of scrutiny for these metro mayors, I just think it's insane. But it's a positive step forward. It's better to have a flawed scrutiny measure than successive governments can improve than none at all. But yeah, it's great, I think. Gemma, did you want to come in on that? We've done quite a lot of work on uh, levelling up, haven't we? And, and some of the, the perverseness of the way that the, the, the funding of, of these areas has worked up until now. Yeah, I certainly agree with Stephen's broad positive response to this. I mean, certainly one of the problems for local government has been the multitude of different spending pots that they currently get from central government, all earmarked for particular things, which means that you lose a lot of the benefits that you get from devolving spending decisions down to a local level because local leaders can't decide, well, actually, we think we'd rather spend a little bit less on this thing and a little bit more over there to get better outcomes for our areas. So definitely positive that they're moving in this direction, but we're not going to see exactly what these greater spending powers look like until the next spending review, which will be sometime next year. Um, but I agree with Stephen, um, a big question here will be making sure that you have the sort of scrutiny that goes alongside that with more powers needs to become more responsibility as well. And just sticking with you, Gemma, on uh, tax policy, we had uh, several tax measures announced yesterday and we at the RFG have uh, spent uh, qu quite a lot of time talking about uh, and writing about the importance of having a coherent approach to tax policy. Did we see any evidence of that yesterday? Um, I'm still not really clear what Jeremy Hunt sees as being his sort of priorities for the tax system. Um, I mean, the sort of three sets of things that make it a bit hard to know quite what's going on. Um, one is that 
first Rishi Sunak and now Jeremy Hunt have effectively started to move in exactly the opposite direction to what the Conservative government from 2010 to 2016 were doing on tax. So George Osborne in that period had a very clear stated objective that he wanted to lower the headline rate of corporation tax, but broaden the base. He cut back on capital allowances. We're now going in exactly the opposite direction. This, that seems to be a sort of deliberate strategy. Um, but as we've already talked about at the moment, that kind of incentive through um, more generous capital treatment uh, within corporation tax is only temporary. So it's not giving a really clear steer of kind of this government's approach to um, taxing businesses. Um, similarly, on income tax personal allowance, George Osborne put it up a huge amount and then Rishi Sunak and now Jeremy Hunt are holding it down. Um, so bringing more people back into tax at the bottom end. Um, and the fuel duty policy, which we've been talking about, has obviously been something that successive chancellors have done. There continues to be no, no chancellor willing to stand up and say, actually, this is a considered principled policy. I think the reason for not increasing duty on fuel is what is X, whatever it is, that this is the reason I think this is worth doing and why I want to put money towards this because it does cost billions of pounds a year to do this rather which could be used for something else um and i think that's particularly problematic because um we really need to figure out how our tax system is going to support our desire to transition towards net zero and if, if nothing else we currently raise about 30 billion pounds a year from fuel duty and all of that is going to disappear as people adopt electric vehicles so we really do need a chancellor to answer the question how are we going to replace that and what does taxation of motorists look like in a world of net zero Really interesting. Nick, you just mentioned tantalisingly uh, in your remarks this uh, potential offer uh, that the government is putting forward for certain NHS workers. Do you think this is a hopeful sign that we might be getting towards the possibility of resolving some public sector pay disputes? Uh, I think there are a lot of hurdles that still need to be crossed together. So if what was reported is true, which was effectively a 6% one-off increase for 22-23, i.e. this financial year, and a 5.2% increase, which is 1.7% more than was previously offered for the next financial year, that will be pretty generous. I think the key questions are, firstly, do the unions agree to take that to their members? I think the answer to that is probably yes. Two, do they recommend it to their, to their members? It might depend on the union. Three, and critically, do the members accept those deals? Uh, and then four, so this offer is for uh, nurses, ambulance staff, and other NHS workers. Is it extended to junior doctors? Uh, and is it extended to teachers and civil servants and transport workers, all of whom are striking at the moment as well? Or given that um, paramedics and nurses in particular are by far the most kind of popular worker groups, is this a kind of start of a more explicit divide and conquer strategy from the government? So I think it's quite likely this will resolve some pay disputes, but whether it will resolve all of them and for how long will depend on the decisions the government makes. Do you have any, any view on that, Stephen? Well, yeah, I mean, so broadly speaking, where the offer for to... Uh, paramedics and nurses is basically where the Scottish and Welsh governments came in and they were successfully able to, well, they were successfully able to get union leadership to, to 
recommend it. Of course, the thing we don't know is that, of course, this is the first set of major industrial actions since the changes to trade union ballots at the start of this period of Conservative government, which require basically require you to have annoyed a much larger group of the workforce for industrial action to start. And it's as yet unproven whether or not Gen Sex can themselves um, make, you know, make, make you know, persuade their own workers to accept, accept it, right? Because the, you know, because the numbers are actually a lot higher on both, both sides. I think it's likely that broadly we are seeing the end of that. Essentially, the only reason why the Chancellor didn't use um, yesterday's budget to settle some of these disputes is that they didn't want their day of, you know, the sun is rising. Remember a year ago when, you know, when everyone thought we were mad, you know, I, the great Jeremy Hunt, have saved the British economy. Some of which is, actually, some of that victory lap is perfectly well-deserved. He didn't want that victory lap to be overshadowed by, oh, and by the way, that thing we said we'd never settle on, we've settled on. But that, of course, is another reason why these forecasts at the end of the projection are are pure fiction in many ways, in that we all know that that is going to have to mean more money for departmental budgets um, in the fiscal event in the autumn. Yeah, indeed. Um, I'm just going to put one last question to Richard, and then I'm going to come to the room and to questions online. So do you be thinking about the questions you want to ask. Um, Richard, just in terms of the ABR's forecast for the medium term, you, you said, as you said at the beginning, that you um, have revised that those down but you still are quite a lot more optimistic than the Bank of England. Why is that? Uh, so we, we know we've revised them up um, uh, slightly since November. They're certainly down okay. since this time last year. Uh, they're about half percent of, of half percent up in terms of the level of GDP by the end of the forecast. The fiscal position is tougher, um, partly because when the Charles got good news, he spent it. Um, uh, partly because uh, because of other things that ha have happened in the forecast. We are. More, more optimistic than the Bank of England in terms of the growth outlook. Um, and it reflects a number of things, a lot of which are just about the timing of our forecast. And this really comes down to the fact that we are all forecasting in an incredibly volatile environment with big drivers of not just forecasts, but actually people's real world economic decisions changing very rapidly, um, even within the space of a few days, the space of within a few weeks. So the bank's last forecast um, was uh, in, back in February, we did our forecast just yesterday. Um, in terms of the things which drive the difference, um, one is the fact that energy prices came down a bit between the bank's forecast and ours. Um, that you know we're a, we're a gas-hungry economy here in the UK, so when the price of gas falls, that's good news uh, for households and for businesses that use gas um, uh, in, and, uh, and, and that use a lot of electricity. Uh, also, interest rates came down a bit between uh, when the MPC met and when we produced our forecast, so that reduces uh, cost of cost of finance for businesses makes investment more likely, reduces a bit the financial squeeze on households. So that also uh, alleviates some of the pressure on demand. And then finally, we take a, a more optimistic view about the recovery in labour participation. Um, so, so of that 500,000 that we that we lost as a, as a result of the pandemic, we think through a combination of just um, the economy writing itself as well as the effect of the measures that we saw announced today. Um, we, the labour participation rate gets back up to about 63% uh, by the end of the forecast, whereas the bank has it basically steadily declining down to 62.5%. So they've got fewer people working in five years' time um, than we have. That explains most of the difference between the three of us. There's also difference of view about what people are going to do with their savings and also a slightly different view on productivity, but those are the main drivers. And you're not concerned that that inconsistency is, is tricky from any sort of 
in terms of policy. I guess the strange thing is when we agree, everyone says, oh, they're all drinking the same Kool-Aid <laughs> or, or kind of subject to the same group think. And then when we disagree, everyone says, oh, you know, you can't get, why can't our two major official forecasters agree? A lot of it is just the time in which you do the forecast. And I think that really does underscore the fact that a forecast is a snapshot of where you think at a given point in time where you, where you think that might take you in five years' time. When, when things like interest rates uh, change, you know, they trebled over the course of last year, gas prices went up sevenfold last year and then came back down by half of that um, in the intervening period, uh, these things make huge differences to what you assume about what's going to happen in five years' time. And so a lot of that is what drives big changes in forecasts and different forecasters arriving at different conclusions at different points in time. Sure. Okay, we're going to move to questions. I'll take some questions from the room to start with. Though we've got a raving mic, so please wait until that reaches you before you ask your question. Uh, let us know who you are and, if appropriate, what organisation you're from. Um, and uh, if you're online, we will be, uh, uh, taking, I'll be taking questions from Slido as well, so do keep sending those through. Okay, there's a gentleman there, Maddie. Oh, uh, Josh Arnold Forster uh, and I work on the politics of UK defence policy. Um, the, the aspiration of 2.5%, uh, that's widely recognised as an aspiration, but I, I'm confused, I'm rather ignorant about these things, which is the 11 billion promised in the budget and then the 5 billion promised on Monday don't appear to be in, uh, in the Red Book on page 33 and page 35. In page 35, it says CDEL is actually going down between 22, 23... Uh, to one point by 1.6 billion. So, would you say that 11 billion is a firm commitment, or is it all going to be confirmed in the CSR? I just, I'm, I'm very confused. Apologies okay. for my. We're going to, we're going to let Richard research that one while we take another <laughs> couple of questions. Uh, so, there's a gentleman just behind you, there, Maddy. Uh, Paul Wallace, <coughs> I'm a freelance journalist. Um, I want to ask why the government's so bad at planning for shocks. Uh, Richard Hughes has spoken about the extreme volatility. But if you take the gas shock, for example, where we're particularly reliant on gas, um, in fact, the Netherlands is even more reliant. And if there's an interesting chart on page 59 showing that the size of our energy support package was much bigger than the Netherlands. Now, one reason I suspect is that uh, in October last year, the Netherlands had over 100 days gas storage, whereas even after Ruff reopened, it was just nine days. And of course, there was the opportunity to do something about that back in 2017, but Philip Hammond wouldn't um, take on board the idea of having a strategic gas reserve. And I think you can go you know, beyond this, but the general thing is, I don't think the Treasury in particular, it seems to me, is the obvious department that should be looking ahead, thinking about risks, uh, taking, applying a, a standard process where you say, how probable is it, but what is the impact if it happens? It doesn't seem to do that. Great, thank you. And then, Maddie, just gentleman over here in the white T-shirt. Hi, thanks very much. Uh, I'm Oli from the Institute for Government. Um, <clears throat> I had a question um, about the uh, NHS pay settlement that Nick gave us a very good overview of. I wondered if Richard, I could ask, uh, the context here is that the government has spoken a lot about not wanting to give generous wage settlements because of their inflationary impact. 
Uh, Richard, would today's announcement have materially affected your inflation forecast in any way, uh, sort of mechanically talking about the effects that you might assume from higher public sector wages? And then, I guess, to Gemma, more generally, do we think that the government's sort of line on this um, is right? Thanks. Thanks very much, Ollie. Okay, Richard, defence spending. So on, on defence spending, I think one has to make a distinction between the current spending review period and then what happens after that. And this is that the government sets detailed spending plans out to 2024-25. And so when governments announce money for those periods, you can be reasonably certain that it's on top of what's currently being spent um, because otherwise they'd have to go back and dig into other departments' budgets and plans to fund it. So uh, you can reasonably assume that what was announced uh, for defence spending uh, as part of this, as as part of the kind of Ukraine restocking, as well as I think getting started on this new um, nuclear-powered submarine program, uh, is on top of existing departmental spending settlements and is an additional money not being taken out of another government department's budget in order to fund it. The issue that you have beyond 2024-25, when you look out over the three years after that, in our forecast, is that the government doesn't have any spending, any detailed spending plans for that period. It just has two numbers, one for current spending and another for capital spending. And it says, we'll come back and set detailed plans split up into health, education, transport, defense, when we do another spending review. So any commitments made during that period uh, is sort of, are sort of notional in the sense that you don't know whether the, def the extra defense money is coming out of somebody else's budget or whether it's on top of somebody else's budget because no departments actually have budgets. Out to that, out to that period. So this comes out. This comes back to this point about you know it's often these are oftentimes described as plans that are penciled in rather than actually planned out. Which is that this is just two numbers going out for three years, and the government allocates the money out probably sometime in 2024 or 2025. Um, so we don't know whether this defence, this, this extra defence spending is going to come at the expense of health or whether it's going to be on top of what health what health might get um, in those years. Um, I think on, on shocks, I have huge sympathy for, uh, for what the gentleman said, um, and uh, I do think that one of the one of the things that gets less attention than the than the EFO that we do is a thing called the Fiscal Risks Report, um, now called the Fiscal Risks and Sustainability Report, which actually looks at what are the threats and shocks that the UK economy could face, um, and we you know we have looked in the past at things like climate change, um, at things like. Uh, energy markets, the pandemic, um, we've looked at geopolitical tensions, what that could mean for the defence budget, as well as tensions in the trade sphere, what that could mean for the UK economy. And it is an attempt to try and get policymakers to focus not just on the central forecast and pretend that, that is, that's what the world is going to look like in five years' time, but look at all those factors that could drive us into a very different place in five years' time, and usually focus on how it could make things worse. Because politicians do just fine when things turn out to be better, right? They just spend more money. Um, it's how do you plan for when things, um, when things don't turn out. Um, as well as you might expect. And there are always things we can learn about countries who uh, are sort of better at managing risks than we are. The Dutch are kind of notoriously good risk managers because they have a country that floods all the time. Um, <laughs> so they invest a lot in flood defenses um, and have done since, you know, since the sort of 13th century or something. So um, I, I think it is, it, it, there should be more focus on risks. We try and, we try and emphasize risks around our forecast, both in this book, but then in a lot more detail in the, in the fiscal risks report. The government produces a sort of worthy but quite short response to that document, um, which they did alongside the budget. Um, it's sort of 30, 40 pages. 
um, and are much less than they do um, in, in, on the budget itself, but I think it's still a worthwhile, uh, worthwhile exercise. Um, in terms of what the, I confess I, I've only just heard what the wage settlement uh, is for, for the public sector. Um, in terms of its inflationary effects, uh, part of it depends on basically how it's funded. Um, in that, if it's funded on top of everything else, then that you know that could be that could add further impetus and demand to be a bit of an inflationary pressure. Um, if it's just absorbed within existing plans, then. Um, it doesn't add much of an impetus to demand, but it might. It, it, would, it, it may have a knock-on effect for what people's expectations are for wage settlements elsewhere in the economy. Stephen, do you want to tackle any of this? <coughs> uh, well, I mean, risks. I think partly, of course, it's about culture, but I always think culture is really hard to change, and it's not really worth trying. Uh, what is worth trying is your electoral incentives. But broadly speaking, most countries which have better risk management than the United Kingdom have electoral systems which, for good or for ill, tend to guarantee some form of coalition government and some form of more permanent presence on both the political and the uh, official side of, you know, there's, there's more continuity within government. Um, because I suspect that if the polls, you know, stay roughly where they are, then when the Labour Party inherits uh, the end of this forecast, they will do a lot of things that are not great for risk management because the electoral imperatives of public services on fire, voters really angry, you know, et cetera, et cetera, will override uh, all of the important stuff in the uh, fiscal risk and sustainability report. Uh, and one way you, 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 know, you do guarantee it to you that is to have a, a better electoral system. I know it's very Lib Dem. <laughs> very Lib Dem. <laughs> no, this is a constitutional debate. Um, Gemma, did you want to... I mean, we've done some work on, on resilience and that sort of uh, approach from, from government. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I totally agree with Richard that there is a broad need for government to take risk planning more seriously, including uh, making sure they respond properly and in with deep thought to the Fiscal Risk and Sustainability Report. Um, just a couple of things to add, given that the question was particularly framed around the risks from energy shocks, um, where I think the Treasury does have a role to play. One is that I think, although we've seen a lot of support for energy costs over the past year or so, um, there's probably been less focus on thinking about energy efficiency measures that people need to make in their homes. So I think there is a gap there on thinking about how we support people to do that so that when there is the next gas price shock, actually people aren't so directly affected by that because they've actually got more energy efficient homes. Um, also, one of the things I think the last year has taught us is the benefit of having more options available to you when shocks hit. And one of the reasons um, why energy support has ended up being quite so expensive to the government is because they didn't really have the information they needed to target support more tightly on those who had really high energy needs and perhaps low incomes. Um, so I think one thing I would hope that the Treasury is taking away from this experience is thinking about how can it put in place better data systems to give itself more options next time that happens. And that is possible, thinking about sort of linking up information we have on people's incomes with increasing amounts of data that we have on energy use by households. I'm less familiar, I have to say, with what the Netherlands has been doing. But Germany, for example, they managed to um, roll out a policy that effectively gave people a one-off payment based on their energy use in the previous year, which had the benefit of targeting support on those with the greatest energy needs. It was that 
payment was taxed, so it was sort of um, relatively progressive. Um, but it also meant that you retain the sort of marginal price incentives in energy prices, which is one of the things that we've lost in the way that our government has ended up supporting energy prices, is that people actually now face a sort of artificially low price of energy, and so they're probably consuming more than they really ought to. Thanks, Gemma. Nick, have you got anything to add? No. Okay, I'm going to take one question online, uh, which is an anonymous question. Uh, what do the panel feel was missing from the budget, particularly in terms of driving up productivity, investment, or economic growth? Then, uh, Maddie, where's Maddie gone with the microphone? <laughs> There's a lady here at the front. Um, Lucy White from Bloomberg. Um, I've got three shortish questions, if I may. Um, the first was uh, on the childcare policy that you've touched on, Nick. Um, Jeremy Hunt, in, in his budget speech, referenced participation in Holland and said, you know, if we had the same participation rates, we'd have one million people back in work. I think the OBR estimates were for, I think, 85,000 off the top of my head, back in work by... Uh, 27, 28, is that right? From childcare? Yeah. 60,000. 60,000, okay. Um, and, you know, I, I'm just interested to know what you think could be done more holistically to get those numbers, you know, that, that, that he referenced back into the workforce. Um, the second was on um, the issues that we're seeing in the banking system at the moment. Uh, you know, we've got trouble at Credit Suisse. We've had uh, two banking collapses in the US in recent weeks. Are these sort of idiosyncrasies that we're seeing with these particular businesses or is it a sign of uh, increased stress in the banking system and what might that do for, um, you know, forecasts over the next few years? The final one was just on the pensions reform, which we haven't touched so much on yet. Um, the increase to the annual allowance and the increase to the lifetime allowance. Um, you know, I think it's, it's not a particularly progressive policy in that, you know, it, it targets relatively wealthy, older people. Um, have you, or can you remember the last time that you've seen a policy that gives less bang for your buck? Uh, Nick, I'm going to come to you <laughs> first, just because there's a couple of public services related questions, I think, there with the childcare, but also what the government says the impetus is for those pension uh, reforms. So just quickly first on what was missing. Yes. Uh, so the obvious thing that was missing, though they've uh, partly rectified that today, was anything about how they were going to resolve all of the uh, public sector pay disputes that there are. Uh, a non-pay related thing, but something that we were expecting, was the NHS workforce plan, uh, which didn't come out yesterday for some reason. Uh, I think in general, in, in terms of that question of like productivity, there is seemingly an issue around productivity in the NHS at the moment, uh, particularly in hospitals, and that we've put quite a lot of additional money and staff in in recent years, and that hasn't translated into increased outputs. Um, now, there are probably a number of reasons for that, not least that we've uh, just had a kind of era-defining pandemic, uh, that there's a lot of staff burnout, uh, that it might just take time for that additional resource uh, to come through. But there's kind of big questions about how we get the most bang for our buck out of the additional, the quite significant additional resources that have gone into the NHS. In terms of childcare, in terms of getting people back into the workforce, so I think we'll need to see how the incentives play out under the new system. So for example, it seems that there's a kind of a very large cliff edge uh, for higher earners uh, in that 
because of the way that uh, you lose funding for it, you are better off earning £99,000 than you are earning £134,000, uh, which clearly there's, that will only affect a small, relatively small number of people. That's a pretty, it's a pretty big disincentive for some higher earners to go back into work. I mean, others will have more to say on this in terms of kind of the wider issues that are keeping people out of work. But in general, we have a kind of sicker population uh, than much of the rest of Europe. And there are questions about kind of public health and the wider support that is provided uh, to the public and also kind of the interaction, the wider benefit system and the, the incentives there. Uh, in terms of the pensions issue, I mean, just to say there was a, there was a very serious issue in kind of older uh, senior uh, doctors uh, in particular that it actually cost them money to work additional hours or to keep working full stop. And particularly when you've uh, just recruited a very large number of additional staff into the NHS, if you don't have those kind of senior people there to induct them, uh, to train them up, etc., then that's going to be a, a serious problem. So it was a big problem. You could have resolved it in a more targeted way, which is what the government did when they resolved a similar issue with senior judges who were also being disincentivized for working. I'll, I'll leave to others on whether there's ever been a bigger waste of money or less bang for buck. <laughs> Gemma, do you want to just follow up quickly on that pensions uh, question and anything else of it that, that I think we've got four there, childcare, uh, the banking system, risks in the banking system, and indeed what's missing? Uh, sure. I mean, on the pensions changes. Um, so in some ways, it does seem that this was quite, a, as other people have said, a bit of a sledgehammer to crack a nut. But the real concern here was with particularly higher paid, older NHS doctors and the disincentives to them working extra amounts of time. Um, now, some people have suggested you could have just raised the allowance for that group. Um, I gather maybe some problems with that. I'm also slightly queasy about that on fairness grounds because um, the reason pe these people are being hit by a tax charge is because they are getting extremely large pension contributions um, and those charges would apply to people elsewhere. Um, but there probably were other options. For example, the way this plays out in the private sector is that people who've already exceeded those lifetime allowances will tend to be offered extra pay by their employer in lieu of an employer pension contribution. You could have done something similar, I think, with um, the NHS as well instead. Um, just one, I, I don't, Richard, I'm sure, can tell us exactly how they costed this policy. But I wonder whether, um, given the announcements um, from Rachel Reeves today that Labour would plan to reverse on this policy, actually, with the exception of those public sector workers in DB schemes who can't control how they accrue pension, um, I suspect for most of the rest of the higher paid population, it won't actually affect their pension saving behaviour if they think there could imminently be a Labour government who would reverse on this and therefore mean that they're not actually facing that unlimited allowance in future. It's just worth saying on that quickly that Labour had already said that it would sort out the doctor's pension issue. So I think they're just reversing it, the kind of the blanket application of it rather than the fixed in the NHS. Okay. Richard, do you want to come back on that? And, and uh, I think, I mean, just on, on the question about the childcare measure and what might have a bigger impact and, wh and whether we could be like the Netherlands, I, I'm always very wary of, uh, of kind of 
analysis which said, well, if we, were, if we were the Netherlands, we'd have a much higher level of female participation or older worker participation because we're not the Netherlands, um, we're Britain. And these countries oftentimes have very different systems, you know, they're very different societies, they have very different kinds of welfare systems. Oftentimes countries that have higher levels of participation either amongst young parents or amongst older workers or amongst people with illness and disability have very different welfare systems where employers pay a much, play a much a larger role in paying for those benefits. And so they have a much stronger incentive to make sure that parents get back to work because they want them back in their jobs. People who are off sick get back into work because they want them back in their jobs because the, uh, the costs are falling on the employers and they're very strongly incentivized to, uh, to get them back into their particular firm. Whereas here, because in, in, in essence, the taxpayer is bearing the cost um, through the benefit system, there's less of that strong incentive that comes from your place of employment um, to get you back into work. Stephen, what was missing for you or any of those other sorted questions? Uh, planning. Uh, ultimately, the government retreated on that earlier. We know it's one of the things that can help increase growth. Uh, it's not clear what the government plan now, having abandoned the Boris Johnson plan and the trust plan, not really having anything in its place. Actually, the sad question on bang for buck is actually most British childcare policy, right, where we pay, yeah, the government spends basically the OECD average in terms of um, government spending and is not getting anywhere near the level of the OECD average in terms of results and parents face much higher costs. And I think in some ways that's more of a shame because lots of countries that are a bit like us do do it better, so we probably could learn from that. Whereas I'm at least open to the idea that the lifetime allowance is a difficult policy challenge. Okay, let's take another round of questions. Maddie, there's a gentleman here. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Arthur. I work for Magic Breakfast. We're one of the leading school breakfast providers in the country. Um, I just wanted to ask, I think something that was missing from my perspective was um, education, particularly the outcomes for children. I mean, it was quite literally at the back of the queue of the budget yesterday. And we're in a context where the attainment gap is the largest it has been in a decade. From our perspective, the increase in child hunger is the largest we've ever seen, and there's been more demand for our services than ever before. Um, and so it feels like the issue is kind of really at the back of the queue, at the furthest reach of the minds of policymakers at the moment. Um, and so to really kind of take the credit for this question from the title of the event, I wanted to ask the panel, what do you think that means for the nature of fiscal policy in the UK? Thank you. Jill has a question. Hi, I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a, uh, from the Institute for Government. I just wanted to ask about investment zones and the transfer of the LEPs to um, local authorities. I mean, do we think this is now a sort of sensible regional economic development policy that the government has come up with? Is it significantly different from the Liz Truss offer on, um, on her, whatever they were called, they called investment zones as well? Anyway, whatever she was going to do, um, do we now have a sort of sensible approach to us trying to spread beyond that? If one of the big issues in UK productivity is the huge gap between London, the South East and the rest of the country. Thanks, Jill. And there's a gentleman here in the orange jumper. Is it orange? <laughs> <laughs> um, my name's Hamish. I work at uh, Stonehaven Campaigns. Um, 
I was wondering, they've announced two new uh, reports on regulators and their uh, contribution to innovation and growth. And I was wondering if uh, you thought there was a growing sense among the political spectrum, both the Conservatives and Labour, that maybe regulators are holding back growth and that's something that will move more into the debate in the next election. Uh, Thanks very much. Stephen, do you want to kick off with any of those? Um, right, yes. Uh, Education, investment zones, and regulators. Yeah. Do they hold back growth? Right. Investment zones. Although there are, uh, in almost every aspect, the current Conservative government is an upgrade on the um, 49 days of Liz Truss, I would say investment zones are one of the ones where it palpably isn't. Not least one of the positive things about the mooted investment zones under Liz Truss is that they actually did, they'd freed the Conservative Party of its allergy to places which might one day contemplate voting for, you know, a socially liberal member of the Labour Party or a Lib Dem MP, right? Ultimately, if we were serious about investment zones, the Cambridge Arc would be one of them. Uh, if we were serious about investment zones and indeed about mayoral powers, we wouldn't have a situation where the London mayor is a glorified traffic administrator. Um, I, I mean, the, these are in terms of low-hanging fruit that doesn't annoy anyone or doesn't split the Conservative Party. Uh, there are quite big gaps, I would say, in the, in the investment zones policy. That's much more, I think, about not being seen to retreat entirely from the agenda of, uh, of those 49 days and balancing the in internal party rather than them being as they are currently constituted a sort of serious position. I mean, on, on schools, I, I think more broadly it was fascinating and we had this commitment to wraparound care, but with the idea that schools should charge parents for it, which is the mess we're in already. I, I think the, I do think it, we shouldn't underestimate that it's a big, a big change for the Chancellor of the Exchequer to commit to providing something, even if he hasn't yet committed the money to providing for it, because broadly speaking, the way the political debate is now going to be shaped on childcare and wraparound care is that the government now owns every single one of these providers that goes, oh God, I actually can't do this anymore and keels over. So I think that the announcements yesterday will uh, increase public spending upwards uh, for, for both schools and for childcare set, settings more generally, and it's one of the reasons why it's not current. Yeah, this is not currently a, a realistic set of, of proposals. Obviously, there's an underlying problem that regulators tend to regulate for harm, not for innovation, <coughs> good reasons and bad reasons. I think because both parties are for different reasons, yeah, the Labour Party is scared of marginal voters on tax, Conservative leadership is scared of Conservative MPs on tax, but because both, for both of them, that shunts them towards having to talk and think a bit more about growth. I think that uh, that will involve different conversations about, yeah, you know, do you get better outcome if you get, yeah, you know, if you put this bit of regulation there rather than here. So that I think will become more of the conversation, and of course that's one of the things and something tanks are excited about about the you know the latest five missions because it gives them something to riff off. Thanks, Nick. Do you want to pick up the education question? Yes, so there wasn't any additional money for schools in the budget, but there was a big slug of additional funding for schools in the autumn statement. Uh, and in general, if you look across public services, I'd say schools are one of the better funded public services, though that it's, the competition is poor, it would be fair to say. Uh, I think the critical thing with schools, though, is that the government has only committed about 5 billion for 
COVID catch-up, which is only about a third of what its own catch-up commissioner said was necessary. So in terms of kind of the, the gap between better off and less well-off students, I think that probably is likely to grow and all the evidence suggests that it was poorer students with less access to Wi-Fi or devices, etc. They learnt less well during the pandemic than their better off colleagues. I think the question with childcare, again, there's some eligibility questions. So I think in order to access the full 30 hours, you're going to need both parents in work, which will mean that some of the most disadvantaged children you might have benefited will not get to benefit from that. And we, there just hasn't been that much discussion about the quality of that provision. Uh, and so whether that will help those children to catch up with their, with their better off peers. Gemma, shall I come to you next and then to you, Richard? Sure. Um, just very briefly on educational attainment. Um, I mean, the, the government in its levelling up missions has a, an extraordinarily ambitious, arguably implausible ambition to improve educational attainment. So it does have that, um, but the uh, money that's in place isn't necessarily, or the policies that are in place don't necessarily um, put it on track to achieve that. Um, on the investment zones and the LEPs question, um, I think uh, probably transferring responsibility for local growth planning from LEPs to local authorities probably tidies things up and brings responsibilities together under one heading, but it is yet another kind of change of structures and responsibilities at local area. On the investment zones, um, I think actually we'd be a bit more positive in some ways than um, Stephen was on the new plans. So it's definitely, these are not big amounts of money, so they're not going to be radically transformational. But I think there were some features of the proposals which were improvements on the Liz Trust plans from the autumn. So in particular that the um, benefits, are, the tax benefits are only going to be available to businesses in an area who are within sort of defined business areas, which probably increases the chance of it being creating additional activity rather than just crowding out or um, moving things away from elsewhere. Um, also quite positive to see that they're announcing uh, doing extra public spending in these areas, as well as just the tax incentives that were part of Liz Truss's plans. Um, on the regulators question, um, this is uh, definitely something that's of interest to us at IFG, and we're starting to do more work in this area. Um, there definitely does seem to be a growing sort of focus from policymakers on all sides on kind of what the regulators can do to contribute to their objectives. Um, but we think much more focus is needed, and this is really why we're starting to look at this more, on the broad range of responsibilities that government is now trying to put on to regulators. They have a lot of different targets, and some of these cut across each other, for example, how does a growth objective square with the objective to protect vulnerable customers or to maintain competition in their markets or for energy regulators to achieve net zero transition and sustainable supply? Um, so I think it's regulators might be the answer, but I think much more attention is needed from this government and Labour in thinking about actually how do all of these responsibilities fit together and can regulators actually do all of this? Great. Thanks, Gemma. Nothing from you, Richard. Okay. Um, so we've spoken a little bit about the uh, the abolition of the pensions uh, lifetime um, allowance already. Um, there's just a question of um, 
fact here that somebody may or may not be able to answer, and I guess this is probably one for Gemma. Uh, so, so the anonymous question asked, the IFS spoke this morning about this um, on the abolition of the lifetime allowance, giving rich people subsidies to save even more, but uh, that being unfair in a context of pensions being exempt from inheritance tax. Is that true? Um, so I, I believe uh, the issue here is that if you die before the age of 75, you can pass on your pension savings tax-free. Um, and so whilst uh, the beneficiary would pay income tax on that when they take the money out, it avoids all of the 40% inheritance tax that would normally apply to other types of assets. So yes, that is an issue. Good Although um, they die soon. <laughs> I mean, just to add, I, I've seen quite a few um, tax advisors on Twitter saying, yes, but there are lots of other ways of avoiding inheritance tax. I wouldn't necessarily advise my clients to put it into a pension. So I will defer to them on other ways of avoiding inheritance tax. OK, hopefully we've answered that anonymous person's question. OK, I, get, I think there's time for one more round of questions from the room. Uh, so anybody else want to ask a question? It's the gentleman at the back. Thank you, uh, Joe Rennie. Uh, I work in corporate development for um, an innovation-driven company and we're looking to expand our business and um, maybe not the right place to ask these questions, but we're looking to you know, hire more people in regions of the country where they've had low unemployment and often um, not high technology-driven businesses. Um, do you think that the um, rise to a 25% tax rate or corporate tax rate and then sort of playing around with R&D tax credits, yes an increase um, but some implications on small and medium sized enterprises actually sort of like undermine business in the UK and potentially undermine uh, the kind of growth that government seems to be talking about wanting irrespective of what side of the or politicians talk about irrespective of what side of the political spectrum they're on. Thank you. I think you're telling us you feel that that is what, what, what's <laughs> happened and, and how do we respond. Any other questions from within the room? No, in which case I'll let you answer that one, Stephen, I think. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think it is ideal, not least there's been a variety of signals sent by government in recent years that it is not that the UK is not as open to business as it once was. And the headline corporation tax rate is part of, you know, it's, it's part of that. Um, I, I think, though, to be honest, for me, the, the bigger problem is the perverse incentive created by the fiscal rule to have full expensing, but only for a little bit. Um, in general, one of, the, one of the debates that British politics is going to have to have with itself is visibly we have mounting costs of our existing public service obligations. We rightly have ambitions to do more than what we're doing currently, and that is going to have to involve tax hikes that aren't just on, you know, business or the rich or, you know, people other than oneself. And if, uh, and if your only plan is to raise taxes on, um, you know, on business or the rich, you're, you're not a country that's going to be open to innovation for very long. Well, that's a, that's a salutary point, point for the government to end on. Um, I think we'll draw it to a close there. Thank you very much to everyone uh, for joining us. And can you all join me in thanking our excellent panel? Thank you.